Yeah, I don't know how many actually. So I said we might be doing all of this the whole live stream thing, causing extra work for me for nothing. But why not? It's always worth trying something, right? Well, we'll we'll start. This is all live now, just so everybody's aware of that. I thought that's uh, usually good to know what's being broadcast out over the internet. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, this whole thing got thrown together just really randomly. It was me saying, hey, I'm bringing my daughter on a trip to Dort, and I have nothing better to do when she's spending the night with a friend on Thursday night. Trevor, what would be something fun we could do down in Sioux Center? And so we brainstormed, and... <laughs> yeah, I wasn't really... I kind of said, let's do something. And so, anyways, we came up with this, mainly just because it's fun to get together with brothers and, and just fellowship. There's obviously, I thought maybe we'd have like five guys and we've got a lot more. So that's, uh, I don't know, it's good to just get together and, and hang out. And the plan is for only a portion of this to be recorded. And then we'll have a lot more fun probably offline. Um, but I, I always have something I want to say. And so I wanted to talk. And then we have another wireless mic. Uh, Trevor uh, will be in charge of that eventually. So after I'm kind of done saying some of my thoughts then not necessarily like a Q&A. I'm not trying to be a, an expert, but just a conversation maybe for a little bit. And then, uh, and then we'll shut it off and then we'll just hang out in fellowship. Um, one of the things I was thinking about um, was talking about kind of how um, I kind of began my journey of wanting to see Reformation in the CRC. And, and a lot of it started at uh, a congregational meeting that we had at uh, one of my former churches. And I was, I was a young guy there, and it was actually my first congregational meeting I was at after being a youth director. I'd been youth director for like three months, and they were voting on whether to allow women elders or not in the church. And I remember sitting there listening to the conversation, and the most repeated phrase I heard was, well, we don't know if this is right or not, but a bunch of really smart people in the denomination say it's okay, so we might as well just go with it. And, and I remember hearing that over and over and over and over again, and eventually that's what carried the day. That, that was the vote. It wasn't uh, like a theological argument. It was like some really smart people think this, some people in the denomination think this is okay, so we should just trust them. And uh, we can't really argue against it, so we'll, we'll just trust them and, and go down the road. And I remember, for one, um, I didn't say anything in that congregational meeting, and I went home very convicted that I kept my mouth shut because I was worried about my position. Um, and two, I remember driving home going, man, if, we're not, if there are other churches in the CRC who are thinking this way, we need massive reformation um, throughout the CRC. And as I've done a lot of this podcast and interviewed lots of pastors, we realize that there's a lot of that. There's kind of been this, this uh, institutional trust that hasn't been uh, necessarily helpful. And so I kind of I talked with a lot of people and thought, okay, I'm going to stick in the CRC and I want to try to see reformation. And one of the things I've been doing, I've been studying you know, the, the Reformation from 500 years ago. And what did they do? What was happening that helped kind of cause Reformation? And um, there was one really great line I read um, from Michael Horton in a, in a Calvin kind of biography where he said, 
Every single reformation that has ever happened in the history of the church has always revolved around a renewal of the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man. And I thought, boy, if, if we were to look around the main issues going on in the CRC right now, um, what are they revolved around? Misunderstandings around the doctrine of God, uh, misunderstandings around the doctrine of man, right? And so there, there's kind of an education component in there. But also, um, you know, Martin Luther was really well known for part of leading the Reformation was restoring the priesthood of believers, right? Helping everybody understand that, that we're all priests. We have an ability to understand and know God's, and God's word and, and speak God's word. And then, and then another aspect that's not necessarily as uh, like sexy, but it's uh, just restructuring the church. <laughs> so one, uh, uh, John Calvin worked really hard on just restructuring and reorganizing the church so that it actually functioned in a healthy uh, biblical way that, that fit. And, uh, and so I, I've been thinking about that as far as, like, how do, how do we start to see some of that happen, happen in the Christian Reformed Church? And I don't, I don't have, like, a big whole... I just have some ideas I wanted to, to share to get us um, thinking tonight. And uh, one, of, one of the things is just simply to, to, for this renewal of reformation around doctrine and discipline, I think, is, I think we're all kind of on that same page recognizing that if, if we're going to see Reformation truly happen in the Christian Reformed Church, there needs to be a renewal of doctrine. We need to understand who God is and, and who we are, really, according to God's Word. Um, but in order to truly understand that, there needs to be discipline, right? And that's, um, that's why Calvin was so focused on discipline, um, not as like this, not that he enjoyed like squishing people like bugs or hitting them over the head with the Bible, but because it's like, no, we really need to know who God is and who we are. And if you don't know that, we need to correct you and guide you and, and do that. And so um, that's one of the things we need to be doing and not just, um, and one of the things you're going to hear me emphasize, I think, tonight, and it's been really on my heart, is we need to see that happen not only just denominationally, um, but really it needs to start locally um, in, in the local churches. Like we need to be able to figure out a way to equip our local churches to be able to see Reformation come about through doctrine, doctrinal teaching and education and, and discipline. Um, and that's not going to be just an easy thing that happens because um, most churches haven't done discipline for a really, really long time. And so when you start talking about it, uh, I just had a conversation about that this last week and all my counsel is like, oh no. And it's like, okay, we got to keep working through this, but we have to be able to come to that point where we're going to do Discipline, and so we need to start working on that um, locally. And, and one of the things that that jumped out at me, I, I read an article by uh, by Branson Parler. I don't remember how long ago that was. Six months ago, he is an article called "One Question Churches Must Ask." And what he was saying is saying that you know a lot of Christian colleges, thankfully not Dort, but a lot of Christian colleges are shrinking right now, and a lot of seminaries are shrinking right. And, uh, and I know we're experiencing this in the CRC right now where there's a ton of vacant churches and not solid pastors to fill them, right? So I know a lot of churches that are vacant and really struggling to, to fill their pulpit. And he's saying, and Branson Parler was saying, part of that has been because churches have said, well, we'll let the denomination raise up our leaders for us. We don't have to do that here. 
and, and what he was encouraging us locally to start thinking, who in our church are we raising up to be the next leaders in our church and the churches in our area? And how can we start doing that? We can't just outsource that to Dort or wherever. Um, we have to really just start doing it, discipling. And part of that discipling means, means disciplining as well. And so we, we, need to be, we need to be doing that kind of stuff locally. And then obviously, and I'm not going to talk a lot about Synod 2023, even though maybe some people were expecting me to talk all about Synod 2023. But I think, you know, part of what we need to do at Synod 2023 is, again, see reformation through doctrine and, and discipline. And we need to stand where, where we believe. We need to stand firm on that and, and discipline and, and correct accordingly. And, you know, one of the things I've said over and over again is, um, you know, the votes last year were like 70-30. And at, the more I've interviewed pastors, I've been doing this for like two and a half years, and interviewing pastors in the CRC from all over the place, and I'm even more convinced now that that was a very accurate representation of the CRC. And I know some people still look at me cross-eyed, like, no, we're more liberal than that. And I'm like, no, we're not. It just seems that way, that most pastors, I have had zero problem finding solid conservative pastors to interview on my podcast week after week after week after week. That's the reason why we haven't done any d duplicates, because I want to show people, look at how many there are. They're all over the place. And so if, if by some crazy like political maneuvering at, at Synod, if they were, we were to backtrack on decisions from last year, I think the denomination will be toast. Because um, I think we'll lose like at least 40% of the congregations in a year because uh, conservatives are done with it. And so, um, and I'm not saying that as like a fear factor thing. I'm just saying that as far as I want to encourage us to, to just stand firm on this and recognize that standing firm on this is what will be healthy and, and, and helpful for the, um, for, for the denomination. And so, uh, we have to be disciplined. We have to discipline, and we have to be swift uh, to discipline. I was thinking Ecclesiastes says, "Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil." Right? You know that with your kids. The longer you wait to discipline something, it just gets worse and worse and worse. Or even in our churches, where we've had people who've been doing something for a long time and we haven't corrected them, we haven't corrected them. Um, what ha the hearts get harder and harder and harder and harder, and so. There's, there's a reason for us not to let this drag on and on and on for a long time, but to act and to act firmly um, and just stand firm. Um, but really one of the things I want to talk about, just because like, I think it's Synod 2023 is going to be really important, just like 2022 was important, 2023 is important. Um, I, if we're really going to see reformation in the CRC, we have to look lot further beyond that. We need to look 5, 10, 15 years, and not just at synod, but just there's, there's a lot of bigger things happening. And, and one of the things I really wanted to encourage here, and one of the things I've really been trying to focus on lately is just trying to help get local churches engaged you know, in the denomination, because uh, I, think, I think we've gotten to where we are now is because most conservative churches have kind of said, you know, that's really messy. I'm just going to focus on my church. I'm going to minister to my people. And that's all liberal, and I don't want to deal with that. And so I'm just going to kind of stay away. And what's happened is the liberal, whatever you want to say, I hate labels, but that's easier. They've said, well, we'll take over. And, uh, and then conservatives kind of complain about it. 
And so I remember kind of rebuking some conservatives when we were looking for the general secretary position and I was poking different guys saying, hey, you'd be a good fit. And they're like, I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. And it's like, well, then don't complain about whoever goes in there. If, if, you know, so like pastors and local churches need to start being involved and can't just kind of have that sit back and say, well, we trust the denomination. We trust them to make the right decisions. And I think most people are kind of at the point. A lot of the conservative churches are like, yeah, we haven't really trusted that for, for a really long call. And so obviously, I guess I should say our primary calling is our local churches. And so I'm never calling anybody to say like, neglect your local church, get involved in the bigger things. But I, I like to encourage pastors, like be involved in like one thing in classes and maybe one thing more denomination wide. Like, just to kind of be connected in what, what's happening. It doesn't have to be big stuff. It doesn't have to be trying to be on the COD or whatever, but just try to be involved in something that's classical and denominational just to get your feet into it. But, but even, even local congregations, I think, um, can be really involved. I think it's starting to happen. What got me thinking about this was I was, I was talking to someone, I, I won't say who they were, but I was talking to someone who's fairly higher up and I was voicing some frustration that some of the guys who are higher up in the denomination have been just dead silent on this. They're just like, mum, I'm not going to speak in favor or against this. We're just going to be quiet and ride this out. And I'm like, ah. like for me, and you kind of get to know me, I just say it. And I'm like, oh, that just shows lack of leadership, lack of conviction. Like, can't they speak up? Wouldn't that help? And they said, yeah, they should. Um, but he said what was beautiful about Synod 2022 was the local churches stood up and said no. Um, and nobody else was willing to speak, but the local churches sent delegates to Synod, and they stood up and they said, not anymore. We're not doing that anymore. We're not going that direction. And then people went, what happened? Um, and I think in order for like, true reformation to happen and to continue to happen, local churches need to keep doing that and need to keep being involved and keep speaking up. And, and, and one of the things that I've been talking about is that like the Grand Rapids bubble needs to be popped. And, uh, and it's, it's crazy to me. I can talk to pastors in Chicago, which is only like two hours out of Grand Rapids, and they say they feel disconnected from the denomination. And that's only two hours outside. And then you talk to guys on, in California, and they're like, Pfft. We're totally disconnected from it. And I'm in Wisconsin. I'm like four hours out of Grand Rapids. We feel disconnected from the denomination. So what's, what's happening with all of that? And that's partly why there's this bubble that um, when, I, when I came out of Synod, I, after I had talked to a lot of people in the Grand Rapids area, I'm like, man, it just sounds like you're speaking a completely foreign language to what I'm hearing when I'm talking to people in Canada and Florida and you know, all over the place. And, and I think that happens when local churches start to speak. Uh, and they start to say, like, no, this is actually not where we're at. And, and no, we disagree with some of these kind of positions and try to speak up more and more. So, so I'd like to see that. And, and I think it's starting to happen. That's one of the cool things. Like, I, as I've talked to some people, you know, there's, there's some people who are, like, wholehearted supporters of Abide. And there's other, like, orthodox people, or however you want to call them, that are like, uh, we're a little uneasy about Abide. We're not really quite sure about them. They, they, I don't know. They're just really uneasy. So I've been talking to some of those guys, and it's like, we're not some, like Abide's not some like secret society. kind of. It's just really like a bunch of, it's such a grassroots disorganized, like it's so disorganized. Um, there's no like big master plan 
being calculated. It's like pastors are writing articles and we're like, yeah, we'll publish that because the banner won't publish it, so we'll publish it. And, and that's literally what it is. But again, it's this idea of local churches saying, we need to speak and we need to be heard on, on what's happening here. And so we're going to do that. And so, um, yeah, I, w- I just want to encourage, uh, most of you are here, most of you are pretty involved in some of this, um, most in classes and denominations, but I want to encourage you to go speak to other local churches and encourage them to be more involved. And, and one of the ways I think, I think church councils could be writing way more communications and not just waiting once a year to do it to synod, but could write, I mean, a church, it'd be not a big deal for a church council to write a communication to the banner and say, like, you know what, those articles you wrote about synod were not really an accurate representation of what was going on. And we'd ask you to, you know, that would be a way to speak into those situations instead of waiting once a year to say something to synod where it gets lost in all of the mess. You could, you could do that regularly, I think. Um, and then just the other, uh, one of the other bigger picture things I, I want to talk about that um, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about and uh, is structure, right? So, so I think getting local churches involved is this kind of renewal of this priesthood of believers. We're not just sitting back saying, well, we're not smart enough to saying, no, we are smart enough. You can understand God's word. Let's, let's speak in that. Um, but the other aspect of Reformation that throughout history has been this um, structure of, of a denomination. And, and when you start talking denominations, I have a number of people who have said, I have a number of conservative friends who have said, why are we even fighting for this institution? Because institutions are just dying anyways, right? Like the whole, our whole culture is anti-institutional and uh, they're walking away from institutions. And so maybe we're fighting for something that's going to die anyways. And I think in some ways, the culture is going anti-institutional, but obviously we shouldn't just go along with that and say, well, um, and so I don't think that's the way to go to just throw off all denominations, but I think there's something we could think about in that and just revisioning how uh, a denomination works and, and functions. And, uh, and one of the things I think I've heard a lot of people say, one of the big things that needs to happen, I think, for, for Reformation to truly keep happening is for this kind of massive bureaucracy and overhead to be, to be shrunk a lot. Um, and, uh, because like, it's just, that's part of that disconnect from the local church, I think is because there's this big thing here and they're all talking to each other. Um, but the local church hasn't really been involved in that. And so it's this big bubble that if if that needs to shrink and, and just on a practical level, like budget wise, it's going to have to happen, I think for the, for the CRC to survive, but just on a real logistical level, and maybe even, even the future, I would love to see this, this move from a big, massive denominational bureaucracy, and maybe to see some of the, I don't know the best way to say it, the funds and the resources to drop down a level um, to the classes, and uh, maybe start envisioning how, how we could start um, raising up our classes. Because one of the things, one of the things that I'm seeing happen a lot um, is um, just culturally. There's there's this big move to everything being kind of smaller and, and more local, right? There's a big push to go to your small local businesses, your small whatever, right? So I think just this is kind of off the, but I think like thousand person mega churches are going to be a thing of the past in five to ten years. I think we'll see a lot of a hundred, hundred and fifty. I mean, we already have a lot of one hundred and fifty member churches, but I think that's going to be more. 
of a thing because people don't want the big institutional. They want something smaller. And so I think we just need to plant churches. Um, but, but as we look at things becoming smaller and more local, there's actually a lot of really good benefits to that that would actually go against some of the struggles that we're feeling in the denomination. When you get, when you get more local, uh, there's more accountability, right? There's way more accountability on a classical level um, and we're experiencing that. On a denominational level, that's really hard. Um, when funds are getting sent to the denomination, how do we hold them accountable for how they're using this money? Well, if that money was staying more in classes, we could, hold, we could have more accountability on that. Um, if we stay more local, you're more connected with the churches and, and with the needs of, of those churches. And so you kind of lose some of that disconnected, um, kind of a bubble type of a feel. You understand... Con, you know, the ministry context and stuff. And so um, I, I don't know what this looks like. It's just kind of like a bigger picture thing to, to kind of cast vision and to maybe start a conversation. And there's a lot of ways you could do that. Um, but, but that was uh, one, one of the things I, I wanted to just kind of dream about and throw out there is like, what if we lowered the number of denominational employees and, and increased which would be from zero for most classical employees. Like what if we had one full-time classical person who was overseeing ministry and churches in every classes and they were paid um, to do that because we dropped all of the, the upper bureaucracy and we're putting more power in, in a, on a classical level. Um, like, do you think that would help local churches more? Would that find them supported? Would that make them feel more connected? Or, and, what if we, what if like 90% of our ministry shares stayed in the classes um, rather than going, going to a bigger bureaucracy denominationally? Like what would that do for church planning and even resource development for Sunday school materials or whatnot? Like what would that, how would that change things by bringing it more local and, and um, so on and so forth? Um, you know, what if we were actually looking to our classes or even local churches, like what if classes were coming into a local church that was doing a really good job um, with Sunday school material or whatever and said, hey, let's, let's fund this, let's develop this for our classes and then let's share it. Um, would that change? You know, I, I know a number of conservative churches, right, who are like, yeah, the denomination creates all the Sunday school material, but I'm not using it because I feel like it's garbage, right? Sorry. But just what it is, or, or it's fluffy, right? It's just not doing the, the job that we need it to do. Okay, well, what do we do then? Rather than going all over the place, what, are we creating that? I bet we have churches that are creating good stuff, um, but let's fund that and then try to, try to share that. So, like, what, what could we do to, to help some of that, that happen? And so, it's just kind of this idea I've been, I've been kicking around on on future, and obviously, I have no authority to make any changes, and I'm just kind of throwing out some ideas on um, to talk about. We could talk about that more here as a group, or we could just ignore that and talk about other issues. That's fine, but um, but I just like those are the areas throughout history when, when Reformation has happened. It's it's been around all of those different issues that like the people in the pew have been empowered. They have not been like well, the the smart people up above us. Are doing it, we should listen to them. No, during Reformation, the people in the pew have been said, you can understand the Bible, you understand it, now speak. Um, and, and as they've understood the Bible, they've had a better understanding of God, better understanding of man, and then they've worked to restructure the church to kind of fit the context and the time and, 
and to be honest, their understanding of God and man and how that works and how, how do we organize the church in that. And so, um, so we need to start having some of those kind of conversations too. I think for some of us, it's been like, if we just get through 2023, then it's all going to be better. And that's not the case. Even if we get through 2023 and all of the progressive churches say, see ya, we don't want to be a part of this, and they leave, and that's going to cause a big budget issue for sure, right? Which is going to force a restructuring. So we have to start thinking about it anyway. So let's start thinking about it now. And what would that look like? And how would we want to see that happen in a way that um, fixes, or at least does a better job of some of these issues that we've been seeing, where the local churches have felt so disconnected and disempowered and the denomination where, I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I just got an email from a pastor. I'm not going to say where he's from because people probably figure it out. But anyways, I got an email from a pastor recently, and he said, I, I just assumed 2022 was an anomaly and that it's just going to get overturned in 2023 because I think we're just super liberal, you know? And, and I'm like, yeah. So there's so many people who are just haven't been involved or connected with this kind of grassroots thing that's been happening that they they still feel like like the denomination's a lot more liberal than it actually is and i think it's probably because of some of the the publishing and stuff that's going out kind of pitches us in a different light um than than we really are um but and so I, I'm wanting to say, like, we need to obviously stand firm in 2023, but we need to start thinking longer, and it's going to be a longer process. And so um, Matt Hahn and I had that conversation a few years ago, like, we need to pull up from the 5,000-foot view of, like, get through synod to the 20, 30,000-foot view of, like, what's our bigger picture of where we're going? And, and maybe churches need to start writing some overtures and, and whatnot to start um, bringing us in that direction. So... Uh, that's why I think that's, that's kind of my, my bigger vision. That's one of the things I just wanted to say. I thought, oh, it's kind of fun. We're down here. What do I want to talk about? Well, I've been, I've been wanting to talk about local churches being empowered, speaking up, getting more involved in the fight, because I think that's really, uh, really what is going to have to happen if this is going to keep going. Otherwise, we'll have a couple big wins. And then I think we'll probably, if these things don't happen or things like this don't happen, we'll probably end up just like the Methodist Church, which had a good orthodox decision, and then, and then they left. <laughs> and then the orthodox all left the, the, the denomination and, uh, with all, and left all the resources and everything, and they're trying to... I, I, Mark Tooley, I don't, I'm sure he doesn't watch this, but he's like, it's still a win. And I'm like, I have a hard time seeing that, that as a win, right? I think, um, and I think it's because they didn't look long-term and at what real changes need to be made in order for that to keep going and for us to keep raising up leaders because um, that's really one of the big struggles we're having right now. I mean, Calvin Seminary is way down low. Um, the seminary students are way down. And like I said, I, I, I was hoping I'd get the numbers when I came here on how many vacant churches we have right now, but there's a lot. Um, I don't know if anybody has those numbers, but it seems I just... It's my gut reaction as I'm looking at the landscape. Um, there's a ton of vacant churches, and they're all like, and I know a number of them have been looking for a pastor for two years or more. And so it's not like it's a quick turnaround when a church goes vacant. They're really struggling to find uh, one, of, one by me has been on over two years looking for a pastor, and, and uh, they're still, still trying to find one. So it's a need for us to raise up leaders and, and get involved.
That's all I have to say. So, because I didn't want to sit and talk the whole time. Um, and so I said like a Q&A or like, <clears throat> I really, I'm not, like I said, I don't want to be like an expert here. I'm, and I'm not an expert by, <laughs> by any means. So more of a discussion. And so any thoughts you have on that or any conversation you want to have, we can do that for maybe like 15, 20 minutes for the live stream's sake. And then, uh, and then we'll wrap up, we'll close in prayer, and then I'll kill the live stream, and then we'll talk for a little bit. But if you want to say something in order for your voice to come through the live stream, um, Trevor Mao has the, uh, the wireless mic there, and he'll pass it around. It's kind of like prayer time, you know, you can wait for them to pass the mic around. And, um, so comments, thoughts, additional things that I didn't talk about that you think we should talk about. Well, I'd like to start, and I would first of all just like to thank you for being here and doing this. Um, and you know, this it's a diverse group that we have here of pastors and elders and deacons and lay leaders, uh, and so kind of united around gratefulness that you are having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily, you know, entirely united around. Um, following all, all your plans yeah. and stuff, right? And, uh, you know, it's important to, to say that we you know, didn't know what you're going to talk about beforehand, but uh, mm-hmm. we're here because we want to have conversations and yeah. ask these questions. And, uh, um, and so we're super thankful for, for what you're doing. And, um, yeah, and so as we have these different co- just conversations, you know, as it's popping up in your head, um, what question would you like to either ask for Jason or just for us as a group to, to think about and mull over? So having served as an elder in a local congregation, one of the things that I see as a, a struggle is empowering the elders that are not pastors, right? As, mm-hmm. a, as a denomination, as Dutch Reformed people, we fall into, you know, what Kevin DeYoung often describes of as serving in Orange City, people still referred to him as Domine, as Lord. He wasn't seen as the first among equals. He was seen as some, um, someone who walked on water, who was mm-hmm. un- untouchable. One of the things that I think we need to do a better of job of and maybe as pastors be more cognizant of is how do you empower your yeah. local eldership to take action and ownership within your church? Yeah. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. I think that's on us pastors, I would say, um, because we have a, a tendency to just kind of step in. I, I was just talking to Kurt about that beforehand, the, the struggle of being a pastor and uh, especially so like I'm in a church revitalization and, and when I first got there, it was kind of like, so this needs to get done, pastor. <laughs> and, uh, and pastors could fall into the, the habit of picking that up all the time. And that, what that actually ends up doing over time is just disempowering the elders and the leadership because you just keep telling them over and over again that, you know what, I'll just, it'll, ha- it'll be better if I take care of this, and so don't worry about it. And so um, one of the struggles is, though, is when you're moving from that place to a place of empowerment is a really difficult period of where the pastor says, okay, so who's going to take charge of this? Nobody? Okay, then that's going to die. And, um, <laughs> and, and you have to do that for a while. Um, and you have to, I think pastors need to work on, you don't just kill everything. You kind of walk <laughs> alongside and you'd be surprised. Uh, here's, here's one of my favorite stories from, 
Um, so those of you who are getting to know me are, are rec- probably recognize I can be fairly intense. You know, I can be kind of laid back, but when I'm going, I'm intense. And so when I first started in youth ministry, um, I was very intense. And I had just got, I just transferred out of, I, I was, I'd been a supervisor in a factory and we were really just getting the job done. And then I was running my own business and we were just getting the job done. And so I got into youth ministry and got some volunteers and I'm like, get the job done. And here's what we're going to do. And here's all these big dreams and, and no, get it done. And I was chasing them with a whip, whip, whip. And we were doing tons and tons of things. And, and, uh, I had this meeting, uh, about two years in where I sat them down and I'm like, you know what, you guys, this, this is so bad. Don't ever do this. Like, you guys are not, like, very committed. You're kind of like, I'm, I shouldn't have to be, like, hammering you all the time to be at these things. You guys should be way more. And uh, my close friend, like, my best friend is, like, weeping. And he's like, what are you? And I remember thinking, oh, my goodness. Like, I'm treating you guys, like, not like humans. I'm treating you like tools for ministry. Like, I need you to get the job done that I want done. So you're going to do that. And so what we did we cut, we killed every single program in our youth ministry, except for one. And we just let it hang there. And I said, I'm not going to start anything. We're just going to kill it all. We're going to do one thing, take it easy. And two years later, we were doing more than we were before. And everybody was excited and passionate about it. (laughs) Because it wasn't me telling them what to do. It was them saying, hey, I'm really passionate about this. Can I do that? Yeah, go do that. And then somebody else, hey, I'm really passionate about that. Can I do that? Yeah, go do that. And we were doing way more. They were all excited, and I didn't have to chase them around with a whip. And so there's a point where it's, it's really healthy for churches to just let stuff die. And it's so hard because every program has like 20 years of history, and someone's grandma started it, and it had this, you know. And, and so it's, it's really, really hard. And yet, I think we need to let it happen, and then we need to, uh, pastors need to be looking at our elders and our deacons, trying to figure out what they're passionate about, where their gifts are at, and trying to um, shepherd them into that. So. Question or comment? You can just say stuff. You guys have good Well, it's, it's going to be both. So... Yeah. so my question almost comes in two parts, right? Because you talked about discipline. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've all been in uncomfortable situations where we've had to, at least I assume around this room, discipline someone in our congregation or an elder or a deacon or something of that nature. And it's awful and we don't like it, but we do it because part of love is discipline. And then, you know, in my work with various committees in the denomination, there's been asking of what discipline looks like. I wonder how that's going to look this year leading up to 2023 on a denominational level. And the reason I ask that is because it's all well and good for us to say, yeah, no, discipline needs to happen because it's loving. But to actually enact it is an entirely different thing. And I'm just, so the question is, do we have the fortitude to Mm -hmm. have the necessary steps to do discipline on a denominational level? And the statement is, I sure hope we do. Yeah. Because if we don't, you're exactly right. Like you were saying earlier, this denomination will implode. And I don't yeah. think it'll explode. It'll implode mm-hmm. right on the Grand Rapids bubble. And it will divide. And it yeah. will be a problem. But I think that the other statement is we have to be aware of a very sneaky tool that is out there in the grass, which is this idea of we have to be united in order to preserve God's kingdom. 
And while unity is extremely beneficial and needed for God's kingdom, it cannot come at the sake of biblical truth. Mm -hmm. And I think what we're going to experience when it comes to the issue of discipline is you're disciplining where you are, you are fracturing the body. That may be so, but, I would rather stick with our creeds and our confessions and the biblical truth on which we rest our faith than be united and be wrong. Yeah. And I think we all need to have that same mentality going into sin in 2023. We can't risk our biblical truth for the sake of unity, and we have to be willing to discipline when necessary and take those steps. Yeah, 100%. And I think uh, two things. One is... What I've been trying to say, and it's actually the same thing. I've been accused of being like against the Reformation, which is kind of funny, but it's the same thing that Calvin and Luther said. They actually said, we're not dividing the church. The church already was divided. You guys divided. You wandered off a long time ago. We're saying we're standing here where we've always been. And so like nothing in 2022 changed, um, right? I, I know people want to say that, but that... It, all we said is, this is what we've always believed this word to mean. Always. Nothing has changed. So they have divided themselves from us, and I don't think we need to feel bad about just calling it out. And discipline actually is never causing division. It's just pointing out the division that's already been there. Even when you're disciplining a single member, you're saying, you've wandered away from the fold, and we're just making that clear that you've wandered away. And now we want you to come back. Please come back into the fold by repenting. And so, so that, that's one thing. Um, but also for Lent, I don't know why I decided to do this, but I'm preaching through the book of Malachi, which is, woo. Um, I think every delegate to Synod needs to read the book of Malachi before you go, because it's really convicting. Because God looks at the priests in Malachi, and he says, I gave you a job to do, and it was going to bring life and peace, and holiness, and righteousness, and you failed. You haven't disciplined the people. You have profaned my worship. You have actually caused people to go into sin. When I gave you the job to turn many people away from sin, you've caused people to go into sin. And you know what God says to them? I'm going to take you, and I'm going to take the poop of your offerings, and I'm going to spread it all over your faces, and I'm going to throw you out on the dung heap outside the city because you have failed. Now, but that, I mean, that should cut us too, right? That's not, we're not just looking at everybody else. We're saying we're part of this denomination that has failed to do discipline and correction. And we've just kind of sat back and said, unity, unity, right? Or peace, peace. When there is no unity, there is no peace. And, and I think we're under that same d- judgment if, if we don't stand up and stand firm. So I've, been, I've been convicted over and over and over again. Uh, throughout Lent, um, but I think, yeah, I think we need to be careful. I guess as I was listening, and you were talking about the foundational things that brought about the Reformation, the thing that kept coming back to my mind, we talked about doctrine, we talked about the doctrine of man, doctrine of God, the, the, those foundational things, and then I look and I say, we spent time in studying God's Word, and we created opportunities for people to learn more specifically those doctrines, whether that's the Canons of Dort, whether that's the Heidelberg Catechism or the Belgian mm-hmm. Confession, and, and we spent time in those, and now they've, well, we, we believe in them, do we use them? And are mm-hmm. we foundationally structuring ourselves, teaching 
and guiding yeah. in those doctrinal, doctrinal foundations and not saying, well, that was good then. Mm-hmm. Well, that's good now, too. Yeah. And how do we as, as pastors, as elders, as deacons, as leaders, um, how do we structure that to move forward in teaching using that as that, as that place of discipline? Mm-hmm. Because this is, you agreed to this. This is, the, this is the structure you agreed to when you said, I belong to this community, this covenant. Mm-hmm. How, how, how are we to aid in growing and teaching through those things? What, is, what does that look like for us? And how do we use them as tools, not as weapons? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I mean, I think, and I don't know, you know, we're all coming, well, I'm coming from a very different context. You guys are all kind of from around here, so you're coming from uh, a different context. Um, but but w- my context, what I have seen was um, a generation that grew up t- being taught the confessions and hated every minute of it, um, and then said, we're not going to do that to our kids. <laughs> um, and so we haven't been teaching it for a long time. And uh, I mean, that was my dad's experience. I, I don't think he'll care about it, because my dad's as blunt as I am. But... Um, <laughs> You know, he said, growing up, I was taught the catechism. It was shoved down my throat, and I hated every minute of it, and it was terrible, and I just I wasn't going to do that anymore. Um, and then I grew up not getting that in, in my home and really in my church. And uh, it actually came up. This is, this is so crazy. But anyways, um, so my, my wife was Catholic when we got married, so don't recommend it. That causes a lot of problems. Eventually, I, I won her over. She's Christian reform, right? Um, but that causes issues once you start having kids, and you need to decide where they're going to get baptized, right? And so uh, we were having that conversation uh, with one of our about our kids, and she's like, well, what do you guys believe about baptism? And I'm like, I don't know. I was like, I think we have a book that talks about that. And so I pulled out like the Heidelberg Catechism. I'm like, this is so good. And I'm like, this is great. This is what we believe. <laughs> and, and I was like, but I remember thinking, why wasn't I taught this? Like, this gave me all the answers that I've wanted, and it's so good. And there's even, like, Bible references down here that I can make sure that it's right. And, and I remember thinking, this is crazy. And so, and, and it's one of the things, again, this thing that I'm noticing, a lot of uh, there's another generation that's rising up saying, like, these confessions are really good and we need to use them and we need to teach them and we need to figure out how to just disciple our, our people in them. And and another interesting thing is, as I've been interviewing all of these pastors, a lot of them did not grow up in the Christian Reformed Church. Um, and they came to the Christian Reformed Church because they loved our confessions and, and our doctrines. And so they're saying, well, this is really good. And, uh, and, and it's those who kind of grew up with it being shoved down their throat um, that were like, ah, that's not that good. But, and I don't think it was, my, my response is usually, I don't think it was actually just shoved down your throat. It was taught to you by someone who didn't really love it um, and really didn't believe it. If you have somebody who actually loves this document and what it believes and can help you understand it, um, I don't care how old you are, it, it's really good. So like we've been, we use the Heidelberg Catechism still for our evening devotions around supper with our kids and we go through it and sometimes the conversation my kids are like well that made me think of I have no idea why that made you think of that but we'll talk about that and we we have really great conversations so I think we need to re-establish some of the teaching through our confessions um, 
Um, now I say this, I would love to see second services reinstated. I'm in a church that doesn't have a second service, so I kind of sound like a hypocrite, but I'm a, fa- a fan of the second service and the teaching through the confessions. Yeah, yeah. And so I think we could revision the second service a little bit and, and make it um, something different, but still teaching um, and discipleship around the confessions. But, but I, we, we read a portion of the confession my church is not, nobody in my church grew up CRC. We're a church plan in a Catholic neighborhood. And so everybody grew up Catholic. And so they have no, when I got there, they had no recollection of the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, nothing. And so we just take a portion of the catechism and we just read it every Sunday and I teach on it for a little bit and then we move on. And I try to kind of tie it in with my sermon, but sometimes I'm like, I don't know, we haven't talked about this one and so we'll, we'll talk about it. So I think we just need to get into those rhythms again and make it more a life, part of the life of the church. Just a comment. Yeah. Um, the way you said rediscovering the catechism, these things, Trevin Wax has a book out, Thrill of Orthodoxy, oh, talking yeah. about the wonder again. Mm-hmm. And uh, just resonated. Yeah. Yeah, that would be good. I haven't read that one yet, but I've heard it's really good. I just think it, I get excited. You can tell that already, but... Um, <laughs> But I think, I think that's something that we need. I think we need people to just fall in love with this stuff and get excited about it again. It kind of wears off on, on people. Yeah. Uh, so one of the comments you made during the early part was about restructuring and kind of giving more power to the classes. Mm-hmm. My thoughts with that are how do we also maintain the accountability mm-hmm. doctrinally, denominationally? Because yeah. um, you look at some of those some other denominations out there that are maybe a little bit more regional and, you know, this region and this region, they might be neighbors, but their doctrines are way different or even church to church, you know, depending on their polity. So, so what would that look like um, with denominational accountability? Yeah. And I, and I'm still like, these are all, I'm, I'm kind of this way. I just kind of throw ideas out there and then we get, I don't, I'm not even saying, I'm just wondering about, I'm not even saying this is the way forward because uh, I know there's some like, well, Grand Rapids East seems to have a lot of power and authority right now. Maybe that's not the way we want to go. Um, and so I don't know. I, I don't have a clear idea on it yet. I mean, on one level, just requiring office bearers to hold to the three forms of unity and actually requiring it and actually disciplining on that, that holds that level of accountability at. And I'm not saying even a big uh, restructure of authority necessarily. I'm not saying that synod would have less authority than the classes. Uh, I'm just thinking resources wise and, uh, and engagement and involvement. So I'm, and part of the reason why I've been thinking about this, I'm, I'm, I'm the chair of our classes renewal committee in classes Wisconsin. And we've been kind of dreaming about what can we do as a classes to make sure we're supporting our churches? Because I don't know if it's the same with you guys, but for the most part, when we have churches that are really struggling in our classes, we don't find out until it's too, they're too far gone, right? You're coming in, you're trying to clean up. And, uh, and so we're like, what can we do to be more proactive and just more helping our congregation, supporting pastors, supporting churches? How can we resource them? And, uh, and some are like, well, the denomination does that. It's like, well, not great. Um, and, you know, I have friends in the denomination. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I'm just saying it's, it's uh, we have to rethink how we're doing things. Faith alive is kind of dead, right? And so... What do we want to do to disciple disciple our people? And if we could have that more on a classical level, that might that might help. 
Excellent. Uh, before we come to another question that we have in here, I just want to make um, the statement that if there's anybody watching online oh, yeah. that uh, and you have a question, uh, we'll try to catch that and uh, maybe even answer that here. Um, and so, Corey, looking at you, if you're watching. Um, <laughs> all right, here's the next question. I don't think it was another question, but I'm going to... Mm-hmm. It is a question, but it piggybacks on the one we just heard. And that is, do you think, and I don't know what's going on in your classes, mm-hmm. but I've noticed it around here, do you think the move toward uh, commissioned pastors, but probably even more so licensed exhorters, mm. is moving in the more local direction or, or not? Yeah. Is, is that a step toward what you're talking about? I think that's helpful. I, I like, we have a, a pretty, it feels like every, every classes meeting we're examining someone for licensure licensure to exhort or commission pastor. I think that's a good thing, right? I think that's showing that we are doing a good work of, of raising up leaders. My, my worry, you know, a commission pastor position is just kind of, we don't quite know what to do with it, right? It's always been this kind of position like, are they ordained? Are they not ordained? And, and so there's, my worry would be that people are choosing to go commission pastor route because they're, it's like, well, I don't want to go to seminary. And so, um, but, but in a lot of ways, I think it is showing that there's this sign of us discipling. Lead. In our classes, it is. We have a, a pretty healthy leadership development network, and, uh, and everybody coming out of that is getting licensed to exhort or commission pastors, so there is a pretty good um, pathway for leadership and, and kind of, yeah. But yeah, I'm, I mean, I've, I've got a ton of different ideas on, on ways that we could try to I mean, I've talked about another crazy idea would be just making all of our denominational positions required remote so that they have to function out of, you can have someone functioning out of California and Florida and whatever, and that would force you to break the Grand Rapids bubble. And then you hold, a lot of big corporations are, who are doing remote work have quarterly you know, uh, retreats where they still get the face-to-face stuff, but, but that would help spread out opinions, but... I don't know. I'm brainstorming. None of, none of my stuff I said tonight is like, this is the only way. It's just, that's why I tried to ask it in questions. Like, what if? I don't know. Yeah, with Commission Pastor, you do see that localness, but, you know, there's that pros and cons of bringing, you know, these are grounds up people that they've, you know, brought up from mm-hmm. their congregation, which is awesome. But it also, you know, we need then greater accountability at the classical level when they're yeah. examining them. Correct. Right? You don't want to... This just be a free for all that you know brings in. Yeah. Who knows what? That's true too. Yeah. <laughs> but except for I say this as licensed exhort, right? So yeah. They, I tricked them. I tricked. Oh, commission pastor. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah. Perfect example. Just kidding. But going along with that, I think the hardest thing we have at at classes right now is to say no to a candidate. Yep. I mean, I don't know when the last time. We said no to a candidate. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Heartland. I don't know if you could, if you said no to a candidate, but I think for Iacota, it's been at least fifteen years. Yeah, um, and that was someone who had seminary training. We probably you know. start. Yeah. yeah, I know. We, we, you have a chance. <laughs> yeah, you have a chance to correct this. Yeah. So. No, you're right. Well, and. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is the biggest issue and i've heard of um i've heard of significant um concerns being raised not in our classes we we had one actually the one where i was ordained there was a uh, someone who was being licensed to exhort and they had answered not helpfully 
in a couple, and I know him, and I know he's actually a solid guy, but he just didn't answer the question well. And there was a big kerfuffle and like a two-hour-long executive session to debate over whether to allow him. Um, and so we've had a little bit of that, but they still passed him. So we've been talking about that a lot. And I've actually been talking with Susan LeClear about it too, saying the difficulty with some of this is by the time we're examining someone to ordain them, they've usually moved their whole family and, and her response was, well, churches need to stop doing that. I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. But like, it's really hard if you've already bought a house, you've already lived, moved there, you've already moved your family. And then for classes to say, like, it doesn't seem like you're fit for ministry, that you're putting everybody in a really tough spot. So I think we need to rethink that. I just, I have no solutions for that yet. I always felt like when we did examinations, we were just there to put a stamp of approval in what the denomination already did and what the seminary did. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. like yeah. we weren't in any way. We're just kind of going, okay. Yeah. Like that. I really felt that way. Yeah. Lot. And that's, again, what I'm saying with this empowering the local churches, because I've, I've had that a number of times too, and where when you do raise a question or a concern, you say like, well, he said this. And, and I've heard of classes where it said, we asked him what the gospel was, and he said, love God and love your neighbor. And that's the law. That's not the gospel. How can we ordain someone as a minister of the gospel when they can't tell us the gospel? And people's response was, well, he passed seminary and he passed his whatever, his synodical exam. So who are we? And, and part of me saying when local churches need to be empowered is local churches can say, no, we are the ones who need to say no. Um, and, and classes need to be empowered to do that. But I think we also need to not put everybody in such a difficult spot where you're like, no, you got to now resell your house or whatever. Like we need to figure out a better, a better strategy for this. So to kind of go along with this, what I am pretty recent out of being candidate and ordained. And um, I guess what I see is we need a stronger vetting process through the candidacy committee um, partially, but then also the individual classes, uh, you know, like in classes Heartland, it's classical ministry leadership team. Maybe they need to be a little bit more robust on vetting people and preparing them. Um, and maybe vetting is not the right word. Maybe it's just discipling mm-hmm. and walking alongside me like, okay, you need to know your, your theology, you need to know it well. Which in classes Heartland, I had a very good team of, of people mm-hmm. um, that did help me. But, but I know that there's a lot of classes that probably aren't fulfilling that role uh, maybe yeah. as they should. Yeah, and and a lot of the examinations that I've seen have gone poorly. It's because the those who are kind of to walk them through their process of examination have dropped the ball and didn't walk with them through that, and they would have picked up some of those red flags. And so it's a lot of, you know, I've told my counsel this too. Like by the time I'm doing a profession of faith class with somebody, um, by the time I present them to classes or to our elders for approval, if they turn them down, I failed. You know, so I'm meeting with every one of them. And if there's anybody where I'm like, I don't know if you're a Christian, I'm not going to say, well, I'll let the elders decide that or not. We're going to have a, a deeper conversation. And so, um, yeah, I think if we can get people to be trying to pick those up and trying to clean that up before they get to classes, that's a big deal. And so I've been thankful. Um, you know, I, I, I've talked with Susan LeClear quite a, not quite a bit, but a, a little bit about this. And, and they are working on trying to do some of that. They just put out a statement recently 
that I was really encouraged by where they said we will be asking every candidate from here on out if they agree with what Synod 2022 did before we approve them. And so I was like, thank you. That That's really good. I appreciate that. And of course, that's not the only issue, right? I mean, like I said, if somebody can't tell you what the gospel is, that's a that's a bigger issue than whether you agree with Synod 2022. Yeah, absolutely. I also had conversations with Susan LeClaire, and um, I, I said to her, in a lot of ways, you might be the most important person in the mm-hmm. CRCNA as the director of candidacy. Um, but, you know, we have to, you know, and she's excellent, mm-hmm. um, but we have to support her and, you know, the classes have to really step up to yeah. to the task and, you know, be vetting and, uh, you know, they can't fall all on this group, the candidacy community yeah. as yeah, well. for sure. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, somebody had commented on the on the live stream that, they would encourage us to embrace pastoral interns in our churches and more interns. And I think, um, I mean, it's another bigger picture idea of just how do we do, how do, we do seminary training? How do we train pastors for ministry? Um, I'm not, I've, got, I, I've, I've got lots of thoughts and, and opinions, but I, w- I would really like to see, one of, my, one of my frustrations has been the, the increasing move in seminary training to more practical ministry stuff. Um, and then there's been less theological training to fit in the, the more practical ministry stuff because pastors are saying, I get to my church and I don't, I'm not equipped. And I'm like, well, yeah, join the club. Nobody feels equipped. You know, you feel like a parent. You feel, I told our, I'm like, I told our teenagers when I was in youth ministry all the time, like your parents feel like a blind man walking in a dark cave. They have no idea what they're doing and they always feel like they're failing. So just give them a break, right? Because that's what we do. And I'm like, pastors pretty much right we're like i don't know what to do and so we're we're trying to trying to figure that out and, but i don't think the solution is to have less theological training i think i would like to see it ratchet up the theological training and then and have more practical ministry stuff because most of it most of most of ministry you can't figure out unless you're just there in the trenches you kind of it is really just baptism by fire you just got to get to get thrown in and Figure it out. Get called by someone to go and meet them at their bedside and, and figure it out, really. With, with someone who knows what they're doing. That's the internship part. <laughs> yeah. To piggyback on all of this, we were talking at dinner mm-hmm. about um, kind of the opportunities that non-residential seminary provides. And so if we have guys in our congregations the advantage here is that you can walk alongside them as they're going through this. Mm-hmm. And then if you perceive, and I think this is, you know, I, I came out of the Presbyterian context where you come under the care of a local council or they call it a session and they walk alongside you through the whole process and they can at any point say, Nope, you're not fit for ministry. So then you're assessing walking alongside. And if you can do that, then you're gaining both theological training and practical training while you're mm-hmm. getting your seminary education. You've got a number of guys looking after you, encouraging, but also then able to say two years in, rather than when you've bought the house and you're awaiting your classical examination, how much better it would be to say, you know, really, you're not cut out for this. So I, I think there's, is, there are disadvantages, obviously, yeah. to the non-residential path, but I think... If we embrace the non-residential and we do it right, yeah. I think it could be far superior. Yeah, I agree. Um, and baked into the, re- like, so I was a distance student at Calvin, so I, I did that program. And 
Um, I was telling Kurt, like it allowed me to, I actually wanted to go residential and dive in and I, cause I preferred to just focus on one thing at a time. Um, and yet, but it allowed me to walk with our church through a really difficult time. Our church was really in a, in a mess and I was able to kind of walk with, with them through that. But it really was good for me to be in ministry and in seminary at the same time and be able to, you know, that some of the professors didn't like us because they'd be like, well, do this. And I'm like, I just did that last week and that didn't work the way you said it worked. You know, let's, how, how do we do this? And, uh, and so we were able to have some of those real practical things. And they do have, they do have mentorship kind of baked into it a little bit. Um, I didn't find that mentorship helpful. I, I was telling Kurt, one of the things that I did is I found a guy in my church who I really respected who was really well-versed theologically, had been around for a long time. And I just said, will you be my mentor? And, and can we just get together once a week and talk and talk theology and ministry and life? And, and that was a huge blessing and, and benefit for me. My other official mentors through the seminary that they assigned me, sorry, they, I, I didn't find them super helpful. They were helpful, but I didn't find them really life-transforming. But the local congregation that had a guy watching over me, that was huge. And so again, it goes down to the local churches saying, we want to support these guys and, and disciple them. Yeah, and I'm almost, almost thinking like, if we were able to realign some of the funding, some of the whatever, there could be people in a classes who are really there to say, I'm going to tailor, you know, even, okay, you're getting your seminary requirements, but I'm going to look at kind of your unique circumstances. You need to read more of this or this or this, mm-hmm. or you need to have this kind of experience. Um, I, yeah, I think it's a really good opportunity, but because yeah. not every, even not every pastor, so maybe a pastor's got somebody like that in his congregation. Maybe he's not the guy who's equipped to do mm-hmm. that, but there's probably some guys in each yeah. classes who could be, so you, you think about like a leadership development team or whatever to really put some, okay, we're going to mark out some funding to do whatever we do to free these guys up to be able to do that even better. Yeah, 100%. All right, we're at an hour about, and that's all I wanted to do for a live recording. So I'm going to close this in prayer and then shut off all the live stream and then we'll have a good time together. <laughs> off the record. Um, but, but let's just take a moment to pray and, and, and uh, thank our God. Heavenly Father, we come before you um, continually thankful that you're our God and thankful that you've called us to be your people, um, thankful for your grace, uh, thankful for your mercy. Father, as we um, look at our own lives, Father, we recognize how often we fall short in our duties and, and fall short in what you've called us to do. Um, we recognize if you weren't faithful and gracious and patient that you could have thrown us off a long time ago and yet you haven't. We're thankful for that, Father. We're thankful for that for our denomination as well, that our own faithlessness has, uh, could have caused you to walk away and you haven't. And so we're thankful for that. And Father, we, we come before you now just as fellow believers. We confess to you our own failures on how we, we've fallen short in our duty to to stand firm, our duty to discipline, our duty to, to disciple your people, to, to raise up leaders, to just walk faithfully following you. We confess that and, and we ask your forgiveness for us in that. And uh, Father, we, we rest in that and uh, we ask your spirit to just renew us and, and fill us and empower us to, to leave from here 
uh, ready and willing to do the work that you've called us to do um, in our local churches. And Father, we do pray that that you continue this this work of reformation in the CRC, that you continue to to raise up local churches and local leaders and and young men who are who are after your own heart and and desire to lead and and see people turn to you. Continue to raise them up and put them into positions of leadership in our denomination. And Father, we do pray that you would that uh, you would bring reformation here and that you would see our denomination stand firm and in, in a way that brings glory and honor to you. And so I pray that we would do that. And I pray that none of us that have been working towards this, that we wouldn't receive any of the glory, that our names would even be forgotten, but, but that your name would be lifted up and your name would be praised for this work. And that because of uh, our willingness to, to stand firm and to trust you, that, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our communities and in our country. And Father, may, may your gospel continue to spread. We pray that you would be with us through the rest of the night. Bless our conversation, bless our fellowship, and may the rest of what we do tonight bring glory and honor to you. All God's people said, amen. Amen.